All right, we're learning Daf Lamed Ches. So we ended up talking yesterday about peace of time and the cancellations that we have in the Torah, whether those are biblical ideas or only rabbinic ideas. Can you charge money for them? Can you not charge money for them? That was the basic uh, dispute that we were looking at. So we were looking at a Pasuk in Nehemiah that says when they returned to the base of Mikdash that they were reading the Sefer Torah and they read it, it was very clear. And we were dashing different things that came from Sinai. So one of the things that the Gemara mentioned was the way that the Pesukim are divided. So... Essentially, we should have a tradition and know where, where you end Pesukim, right? That's always a very important thing. Moshe writes in the Truvas, well, even more so than getting the trap right, the main, most important thing when you're learning from the Torah is know where the Pesukim end, the division of the Pesukim. So the Gemara here tells us that even though it's Allah Moshe Sinai, sometimes you can get a dispute about what the tradition is, right? So Amar Vach, Re'akim, and Ravan, they divide the following Pesuk. Well, in, 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 in Bavl, they read it, um, they, so in other words, in Bavl, they read it as one Pasuk, but, it, but in Eretz Yisrael, they divide the Pasuk into different Pasukim. Which, which Pasuk are we talking about? So is that the end of the Pasuk? And then the Pasuk goes on to say, right? And then it says, Moshe relates people, the words over to Klai Yisrael. That's the Pasuk all inside. So the question is, is that three different Pasukim? Or is it one big Pasuk? The full Pasuk, the way we have it, but what's happening is that even though in Babel we read it as one Pasuk, in Eretz Yisrael, they're dividing it. So what's Pshat? must just be that there's a dispute about the different versions. Right? In other words, sometimes you have that. Despite the fact that it's Halacha Moshe Sinai, sometimes you'll see how tradition will break up into dispute. Everyone's just arguing about which tradition is correct. Okay. Says the Gemara, here we get a different point. We mentioned that Moshe Rabbeinu did not teach for money, right? But Moshe became very wealthy. What made Moshe wealthy? All the fragments that he had from carving the luchos. So meaning the second luchos were not the work of God. Very important concept here. First luchos, Moshe breaks. Hashem says, you go make the second luchos. So how do you make luchos? You carve it, right? So there's a whole, you know, like sapphire and things and you chisel away at it and then you make luchos. So what happened to all the residue of this sapphire, all the leftover stuff from, from the carving? So Moshe was allowed to keep it. And that's how he got fabulously wealthy. What does it mean, psol? Literally means to carve. But we expound, the fragments, the psal. Psal can also mean like the residue, the leftover, should be for you. Moshe Rabbeinu was granted that gift that he was allowed to keep all the leftover, the leftover psalis. There's a lot of depth in that, is that... Uh, when you, when you study Torah and you, and you carve, carving, it means that you're not just, you know, receiving it, not just listening to the words, but you're, you're, you're like really engaged. You're proactive. You're chiseling away. Imagine the person making luchos, right? So you're working really hard. So not everything is perfect because we're human beings. So we make a lot of mistakes. And the second luchos, we're not perfect. But even the imperfections of human being, and they're not going to become the, you know, what's the beauty of Torah. You're not going to say something that's not right. But it's not worthless. It's not meaningless. Even the psolas, even the parts, the small fragments, which were ultimately were not used, they were chiseled, and then there was parts on the floor. But that psolas has tremendous value. And that's the Indian here, is that when you're striving, you're working hard, you're trying to understand what's going on, even when whatever information is not the MS, but it still has value to it, and that's what Moshe made Moshe Rabbeinu rich. Continues the Gemara, Originally, the whole Torah was only meant for Moshe's family. Write for yourself the words, and everything is just for you. Just the fragments will be just for you. So the writing was only for Moshe and his family. Fascinating idea. Torah was not going to be for the whole nation. But Moshe was generous. 
But it's only so I'll give it over to Alka Yisrael. Allah comes to Vomer Tov Ein Hu Yivarech. Now, it's a pretty wild idea. So what does that mean? That we don't have to keep the Torah? Like, what is that? I mean, what, what, how do we understand? So what maybe it means, and this is really what the Gemara asks right away, It says in the Pasuk that Moshe was told, I was meant to teach you all the halachas. So he's commanded to teach them the Torah. How could we say that Torah is only for Moshe? Says the Gemara, You break it up like this. I was commanded, comma, I was commanded about the Torah and how to observe it. And only later did I decide to give it over to you. So the Gemara is, Mamsha, I mean, the Gemara is going to slug it up soon, but the Gemara is saying now almost a bizarre idea that although Kla Yisrael was given the Torah at Arsina, that's what's hard about this. We all stood at the mountain. God revealed himself. But the actual form of the Torah and then the observance of the laws was only made for Moshe and his family. How could we dare say that? I've taught you the laws and the chukim just like Hashem commanded me. We see that Moshe was commanded to tell Kla Yisrael. So as the Gemara, no, we can again defend. Ositziva was only me who was, who was commanded. Va'ani lachem. I, Moshe, then chose to give it over to you. Says the Gemara, third passage. It says, Va'ata kisu azinu. Write for yourself this song. So what, what and put it into Kla Yisrael's mouth. What does that mean, put it into Kla Yisrael's mouth? Introduce it to them. So clearly Moshe is being told to give them the Torah. Says the Gemara, Shira l'chudah. That's only talking about the song of Hazinu. We're talking about the rest of the Torah. You're right, Parshas Hazinu, the special song, that was something that was meant to be given over to Kla Yisrael. But the, 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 the whole Torah itself was only for Moshe. For the Gemara, Laman, Tila, Yisrael. But the Pasuk continues that the song is going to be an aid. An aid is a witness. What does that mean? If Kla Yisrael ever sins, this song will now testify that we had committed to keep the mitzvot, and if we're, something bad happens, it's a reflection on our failure of what, doing what we're supposed to be doing. So what do you mean? What covenant? If the covenant wasn't really for us, what is this song being a witness to? We, don't, we shouldn't be punished for not doing the mitzvot, it's only for Moshe. So the Gemara therefore accepts that it's a mistake. Of course the Torah was given to us. What does it mean that it was only given to Moshe? Ela pilpula ba'amah. We're talking about pilpul. So what's pilpul? Popol is the, it's complicated. You can't really get an exact translation for it, right? But it means all the deeper analysis, the way to reason with the Torah. In other words, there's one thing to absorb information, and there's another thing to grapple with the information, to have questions and answers, the dialectics of it. So it's the complexity of Torah. So that was originally the power of Pilpul was only giving it over to Moshe, but then eventually he gave it to Klai as well. But of course, the covenant itself, the basic idea of the Torah, that was given over directly to Klai as well. Hashem only gives the Shechina, meaning a person only is a prophet, if they are mighty, wealthy, wise, and humble. We learn all of these characteristics from Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu is the paradigm of a Navi, right? Like Moshe, Moshe is the best Navi, and he had all of these qualities. How do we know all these things? Gibor, Moshe was mighty, Moshe took the tent, this is when he was building the Mishkan, he took the all the curtains with the, the wool of the goats, and he spreads it over the Mishkan. It means that Moshe personally did it. That's the Pasuk saying, he did it. Now, how tall was that? That the length of each board that were then raised vertically, so to make the walls, was 10 Amos. So that means Moshe must have been 10 Amos high. 10 Amos high is pretty high, right? Average height today is what, six feet? So an Amos is somewhere between an, a foot and a half and two. So Moshe Rabbeinu is huge height. He's able to just reach up and, 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 and extend this over, over the Mishkan. That's interesting. It doesn't say maybe it's some ladders. I don't know. It doesn't, say, it doesn't sound like he had any ladders helping him. So then, so then clearly we see he was very tall. So what's the Gemara saying? If he's very tall, then presumably he's very strong. So the Gemara, that's not a proof. Maybe he was tall, but he was still weak, right? Strength does not necessarily commensurate with one's height. 
So it says the Gemara, Elevin Hadin Kra. We look at this Pasuk. When Moshe Rabbeinu comes down from the Golden Calf, it's like we have the two Luchos. I threw them down and I smashed them. It says in the Bible, how big were the Luchos? Arkan Shisha. They were six Tvachim long, Rachman Shisha, and they were six Tvachim wide. They were three Tvachim thick. So if Moshe Rabbeinu was strong enough to throw them down with such force that they would shatter, clearly he must be a really strong man. Says the Gemara Ashir, how do we know that Moshe Rabbeinu was wealthy? Because what we just said before, the carving for yourself, that the fragments that were left over were from Moshe. How do we know Moshe was wise? Famous idea. There are 50 gates of insight. You know, there's 50 levels of wisdom in the world. Except for one. Only, you know, a human being can only attain to the 49th level. As it says in the Pazik, when we're talking about Moshe, you made him just a small measure less than the, the God's wisdom. So that means Moshe didn't reach the 50. Anav, he is humble. As it says, right? That's a Pazik in the Torah. Now we move on to other prophets. All the prophets were wealthy. Where do we learn this? Moshe, Shmuel, Amos, and Yonah. Moshe, this is... Moshe says, in the rebellion, when Korach rebelled, and he's trying to say, you know, I didn't... What do you guys want from me? I've been such a loyal leader for everything, and I never took even one donkey from you. So what does it mean, I didn't take a donkey from you? It means that he didn't stomp, grab someone's donkey, and not pay for it. Moshe intends to say, oh, I'm not a thief. Like, he's praising himself that he's not a thief. You don't need to praise yourself for that, right? Obviously, the, any basic uh, decency is that you don't take somebody's donkey and not pay for it. The Pasuk was saying that he didn't even take a donkey with, for payment. Why not? Why didn't he do that? Shad is, he was extremely wealthy, and he never needed to take someone's donkey for payment. He never needed to buy a donkey. He always had plenty of animals and never needed to hire from somebody else. So that is a proof that Moshe Rabbeinu was a wealthy person. Zaktimar, maybe the opposite. Shem Aniha. Maybe he was so poor, and, 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 and therefore he, he, he had nothing, he had no need, he had no belongings, he had no need for donkeys, right? Why does a person hire donkeys? To carry their stuff. Maybe he was so poor that he, he was able to carry it himself, he just never needed to, to rent a donkey. Zaktimara, you're right. The way we know that Moshe was rich is like we mentioned before from the fragments of the Luchos. Okay, now we get to Shmuel. Shmuel, very similar, it's eerily, you know, like similar over here that when uh, the people asked for a king, so Shmuel, Shmuel was very offended because in a sense, it was a rebellion against him. He was the prophet. What do you need, what do you need a king for when you got me? So he says again, what did I do wrong over here? Who's, did I take someone's ox? Did I take someone's donkey? So what is he saying? If he means I didn't take an animal without paying, the same type of question. What? Shmuel has to exclude himself from a type of person who would take without paying, a regular thief. Apostle wants to be saying that he never took an animal even for payment. So we see that Shmuel was rich. Maybe the same thing. Maybe really he was poor, but he didn't take someone's animal, not because he had his own, but because he had no baggage. He didn't need it. The Pasuk says, He used to travel. One of the things of the, of the, of the, of the difference between a Navi and a king is that the king sits in his palace, right? The Navi is a traveling man of God. He travels around inspiring people, speaking to people, judging people. So it says that, that, that there, his home was there. So what does that mean, his home was there? He always took his home with him, meaning this is like the, the ultimate sign of wealth. You have so many, so many belongings that you have homes throughout everywhere. In other words, he's a traveling man. So every city, he had another home. He always had his own stuff. He wasn't, you know, schlepping suitcases in his wardrobe when he was going. He had over there and there and there. Everything was set up for him to go. So that's a sign of wealth. It says the Gemara, Amar Rabbah. 
The way the Pasuk describes Shmuel is even greater than the way it was describing Moshe. It says, I haven't taken a single donkey from them. Meaning that he didn't take a donkey for payment. By Shmuel, he didn't even hire an animal with the owner's consent. Meaning he theoretically would have been able to just take it away for payment even if the owner doesn't want it. Like there's two types of things. There's a, way, there's a type of guy who will say, listen, I'm the governor. I got full control over here. I'm not going to steal. I'm not going to steal. I'll pay you, but I don't really care if you agree to it or not. I'm paying you the money. Give me the, the donkey. That's all Moshe Rabbeinu was saying. I didn't do that. Shmuel is saying even more. Even if someone wanted to rent me the donkey and I have to pay for it, I wouldn't do that. You haven't gone below You haven't brought our consent. Meaning the, the people responded to Shmuel and saying, you're right. You haven't even brought us to consent to give you the donkey. By Moshe, all the level, all we see from Moshe is that Moshe never took someone's donkey for, even for payment. But we don't know about whether or not he took it with their consent. With Shmuel, we see that even with their consent, he never would do that. By Amos, you know he was wealthy. By Amos, so, so what exactly does that mean? That I own a lot of cattle and I own a lot of trees. So basically the point is he had a lot of property, a lot of real estate and cattle. Yonah was wealthy. How do we know? Because Yonah, but remember, he's on the boat. And uh, that whole story when he was on the boat running away from the word of God, he didn't want to, uh, he didn't want to go prophesize that the this, this city of Nineveh was going to be destroyed. So what happened was that he's on the boat. It says he pays for the fare of the boat and he gets on the boat. So what does it mean he pays for its fee? He didn't just pay for his right of passage. He paid for the whole ship, which is wild. Right? It's a pretty wild thing. What's the shot? Why would he do such a thing? Well, it's like a funny thing. Obviously, he chose he's wealthy, but why would you do that? Shots like this. No, a very good shot. I heard this. I see this in the, in the art school master always every year on, uh, on, on Yom Kippur. That Yoda was trying to run away. So he gets to the boat and, and, and he's like the first guy who shows up. So they're like, it's a nice ocean liner, you know? So they're like, okay, let's wait until we get more passengers and then we'll go. But Yoda has to run. Yoda wants to go. That's the whole thing. He's trying to flee. See, he pays for everything. So even though it wasn't a full boat, I was, he obviously wasn't the only one on the boat. I'm embellishing. There are other people on the boat. The Pesukim are clear. But the point is, it wasn't full. So he had to pay the fare for all the empty passengers in order to get them to go. And then, so obviously, we see he's rich. How rich? It was worth 400 dinners of gold. All right, says the Gemara. This is an unbelievable idea. When Moshe went up to, to learn the Torah, he would learn Torah, but he'd forget what he would learn. Every time he'd forget it. I remember, it's, it's pretty amazing. With 40 days and 40 nights, he's trying to learn the entire Torah. So Moshe used to forget stuff. Until eventually, who gave it to him as a gift. There's many, 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 many different stories about the way that this Gemara was quoted to give chizek, to give strengthening to people who were studying Torah, the yeshivas, and this and that. But the basic idea is that you cannot look at Torah as an intellectual pursuit because our capabilities will not bring us to an understanding of the Torah that we can retain. And it, it's only through the gift of God, every time that you remember something, it's, it's a gift. It's a gift that you're able to do it. It's wild, because on the one end, you have to put in all your effort, and it doesn't come naturally. But on the other hand, right, all that stuff we were talking about before, but here we see, ultimately, it just goes in as a gift. It's a wild sense of paradox, that we try so hard to understand the Torah, but ultimately, it's just a gift. Says the Mishnah, 
Remember, what were we talking about? The mother Hanav. Reuven can't get Hanav from Shimon. So the question is, what types of things can Shimon do for Reuven? And what types of things can he not? So the Mishnah says, Vizonis Ishbaz He's allowed, Shimon is allowed to feed Reuven's wife and children. Even though Reuven is liable for their support. So by Shimon giving them food, what does that help Reuven? It helps Reuven save money, right? But the idea is, no, the act of, of, of benefit is not directed towards Reuven. It's directed towards Reuven's wife and children. So even though indirectly there's an advantage which is gained by Reuven, the Mishnah is Mako, and the Mishnah is saying that's not an act of giving benefit to Reuven. However, you can't, like, um, you know, fatten up, like they used to do that, like fatten up the, the animals. And you can't do that for whether it's a kosher animal or non-kosher animal because there's more value in the asset of the animal the fatter it is. So if I, it's a, considered a direct benefit. It's such an interesting contrast, right? There's no, I don't own value in my wife and children. They're just, they're my wife and children. I would ha- otherwise have to feed them. So you feeding them is not directly benefiting me. It's indirectly saving me money, but it's not directly benefiting me. But when you feed my animals, so you're, you're, you're basically giving my property more value. You're directly giving more value to my asset. So that's considered a direct uh, giving of Hanan, and therefore it's also. You could give to the unclean animal because unclean animals don't have more value. They're just for work. They don't have more value for being fattening up. Why? Because you don't eat them. They're not kosher. It's only for the clean animals, the kosher animals that you can't fatten up. What's the difference? When it's a kosher animal, spirit in Shemaim, but the body is yours, meaning we look at the meat as being yours. You're going to eat the meat. So therefore, what? We say that the more fat it is, the more value it is. So you're giving me more benefit. But to Mayo, when it comes to the non-kosher animal, even the, the, both the spirit and the body are, are heavens, meaning to say that you're not going to eat it. Heaven told you you don't have it. So basically, all you're going to do is, is work with it, but nothing more. So you don't get any more benefit when, when, when it's getting fattened up. So Amulah, the Chum said, what are you talking about? You could enjoy it from the body. Why? If you want, you can sell it to a guy. There's no isser to benefit from, from, from an unkosher animal. You could, sell, you could sell the horse to a guy and the guy can eat it. Or theoretically, you can feed it to your dogs. So therefore, the point that we're saying is it could be described as having more value. So you have to understand what exactly machlokas is. Everybody agrees to the facts, right? You could sell it to a guy. But the point is, I think it's like more what, what the asset really is when you define it. Like, what, what is it omit for? What's the regular norm of, form of usage as we showed and discuss? And that's how we can understand that there's a level of dispute here. There's two ways to look at it. Are you giving my asset value when you, feed, when you fatten up my non-kosher animals? Everybody agrees with kosher animal. The more you fatten it, yeah, that, that's the value of the kosher animal. It's meat. It's value, how, 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 much, how much there is, how much you'll get in the meat market for it. So therefore, the fatter it is, it's considered direct giving a benefit. Non-kosher animal, there's different ways to look at it. Says the Gemara, You could still do a shidduch together. Fascinating questions, right? In other words, can you marry someone when you have a mother scenario? So the Gemara tries to figure out which direction we're talking about. Which way? If, if it's the case where the bride's father, the bride's father is all of his property is usher to the son, this prospective son-in-law. So basically you have like this. Reuven can't get Hanaf from Shimon, right? Shimon's got a daughter. Could Shimon marry his daughter off to Reuven? That's the question. If you're going to tell me that's the pshad and you're saying it's mutter, why is it mutter? Because he's not getting Hanaf in the possessions of Shimon. It's not like that. He's getting making a shidduch. He, he's, he's, he has a relationship with now with Shimon's daughter, but it's not. He's not getting benefit from Shimon. But that's not true. He's giving him a maidservant to serve him. 
So let's understand the line in the Gemara. What does that mean? A wife is not a maid servant. What does the Gemara mean? So let's understand. This is very important. There's two types of age. There's an age when a father can marry off his daughter, and it's the father's decision. And then there's an age when a girl is, an, is autonomous, and she can make her own decisions, and the father cannot. So until 12 and a half, it's the father's decision. After 12 and a half, it's the girl's decision. The Gemara thinks right now that we're talking about a girl under the age of 12 and a half, where it's the father's decision. So when the father accepts the cast of Kedushin, what's happening? He's giving his daughter over to the prospective son-in-law. In that scenario, the Gemara is arguing that it's no different than delivering him a maidservant because there's all these side benefits that come in marriage. So when I give you my daughter in marriage, that's an act of giving you benefit. So even though ultimately Shimon is not like he's going to be serving Ruvain, but the very act of giving him his daughter, marrying off his daughter to Ruvain, should be forbidden. So the Gemara therefore says we have to we have to we have to flip it around. The case is that for the property of the Chasan is also to the father of the bride, meaning just the opposite, right? Reuben can't get enough from Shimon. But the question is, not, not, not could Reuben marry Shimon's daughter, but could Shimon marry um, Reuben's daughter? That's the question. And the Shaila is, is that going to be ultimately getting benefit? So the person subject to the nether is the prospective father-in-law here. And the question would be, it's not considered that you're giving any benefit to the father of the bride. Now, why not? Where you are. Why is the father of the bride happy when his daughter gets married to somebody? Why? Someone's going to support her. Right? Someone's going to support her. So the Chiddush is that no, that's not considered I'm benefiting him. I'm going to support his daughter by taking her in marriage. Indirectly, he'll benefit that he doesn't have to pay for her support anymore. That's what you'll say. And that's true. That's taka true. The Gemara accepts that. Of course, that's permitted. But the problem is that's not a novelty. Why? We said in our Mishnah already that that's obvious. Why? What did the Mishnah say? Even when a person is married, I could support, in the mother I know scenario, I could support his wife and children. Even though in the moment, the subject of the nether has to support them. So even when a person... Even when Reuven can't benefit from Shimon, Shimon could feed Reuven's wife and children. So all the more certain that it's not going to be a problem for taking the daughter. That's not a chiddish. In other words, once I see that the vower can feed the subject's daughter even when she's remaining in her father's rishos, all the more so he can take her out of the father's rishos and support her. It's certainly going to be more of an indirect benefit to the father. Is there additional hana of marrying off his daughter? That the Gemara doesn't seem to see as anything with value. I think we have to see hana here not like pleasure, but like benefit, you know, like that kind of thing. So the Gemara answers, Really, we're talking about the way we had before, that the property of the bride's father was also to the chasa. So I, we had shver, that then taka should be also, because the father is giving the son-in-law benefit by marrying, by marrying her off. The answer is, we're talking about where the daughter was a bogeres, and we died, so therefore she's getting married with her own consent. So it's not, it's, she's not, it's she who's giving herself over in marriage. It's not the father who's giving her daughter in marriage. So if she'd be under the age of 12 and a half and it's the father's decision, so it'd be that the father is giving his daughter in marriage, I'm giving you the benefit by transacting the condition. But if she's older than 12 and a half, which means that she's affecting the condition, so the father, that's, he's not the one who's giving the benefit there. So therefore, the chassan is getting no forbidden benefit from his father-in-law. Now, he obviously, he can't go to his father-in-law's house for Pesach and eat the food, right? That's, of course, true. But the marriage here is not a problem. 
Says the Gemara Tanah Ve'alchah. The Brayer says like this: also has a If one is subject to a nadir, he can't get benefit. Then he cannot marry off his daughter to him when she's under twelve and a half. Misiyah bita bagaris mitaita. But once she's twelve and a half, and it's, in, and it's according to her das, then that is all fine. Continues the Gemara Amar Biyakov. A father vows not to benefit from his son. So let's try to understand. The Ram learns pshat that a guy really wants his son to learn Torah, and he doesn't want his son to have to take off any time or any expense to serve him or hang out with him or anything like that. He just wants that his son should be devoted to study of Torah. So therefore, in order to make sure that that's not gonna happen, that his son will waste time from his studies, his father took a vow that he's not gonna benefit from his son. Fascinating idea. Says the Gemara, the son could still do the most basic needs like filling up a jug of water and lighting a lamp. Those types of things can be done. So he doesn't, you know, he doesn't have to go out to the restaurant with his father and, and spend Thanksgiving with him. But the basic things, of, like most basic, that he could still do. He could roast him a small fish. What's the shot? Because there's small things that aren't really disturbing to the son's studies. And therefore, we assume the father did not mean to include them. So normally, we don't say that. Normally, if I say I can't get benefit at any form of benefit, it doesn't make a difference how much value it is. But here we're saying when it's the scenario of a father vowing not to get benefit from his son so that you know, his learning won't be, on, won't be interrupted, we assume that the small little things are, are, are okay. <laughs> In the case of someone who can't get benefit from his friend, he could give him the cup of peace. What does that mean, Manio? What is the cup of peace? In Bible they say, the cup that you, the wine that, that the mourner drinks. So we don't do this so much anymore, but we, we, learned, we learned about this a little bit previously. In our Dafyomi travels, that it's very important for mourners to drink wine. The Gemara says that that's the very reason why wine is created. In fact, it used to be the halacha that there were 10 cups of wine which were drunk by the meal in the, in the Shiva house. It was very important that wine was drunk. It was part of the, the, the way that they dealt with the pain. Um, so anyways, so the Shail is, the mother-in-law is around. Could he, could he be the one to give the wine? So we say that it's okay. So most Rishonim hold doesn't mean he could pay for the wine. He can't give the wine, like give the bottle. But it means he could be the one to serve him, even though that's, that's service, that's value. But such a thing, we assume, is not, is not included in it. It's hard to understand, even so, even if the, the wine does belong to the mourner. Still, Lamaisa, you know, what is it? So basically, we have to say that it's, it's, like a, it's, like a, it's, like a courte- it's like an act of courtesy, not an act of service. It's very, very subtle here. What's an act of, what is an act that benefits you? So ordinarily, if I start, you know, waitering on you, so that's a value, right? But then there's certain contexts, certain scenarios where it's like a service. It's like, that's what, that's what does. Like, you pour the cup of wine for the mourner, so it's not considered an act of benefit. But Rav Ami and Aritzel say, Kosha Beis America, it's the cup of the bathhouse, meaning they used to drink water after exiting the bathhouse. It was like very steamy, like a sauna, and like you needed to regain your spirit. So be careful, they're very important to drink. So again, that type of thing, you pour them water, that, that's, that's an act of courtesy. Okay, then we have the machlokas, if you could fatten up the non-kosher animals, right? So the Gemara says, and Rabbi Lezer says that you could feed the unclean animal. Tanya, the vower can feed the slaves, right? Because, because when you're overfeeding the slaves, you're not giving them more value. You're not giving them the basic things. But he cannot feed the animal, kosher or not. My time, what's the distinction? Why are you allowed to feed the slaves but not the animal? Says the Gemara, the slaves... What, what are they omit for? They're omit to be torn apart. So what does that mean? They're omit to be torn apart. So usually, what it means is that if you're not going, if you're going to be discarding the flesh, it'd be torn apart. And what we mean is that they're comparable to an animal that you intend to tear, in the sense that 
just as when you're going to tear it, you're going for the, you, you, you don't really care about the meat, you're just going for the hide, so too with a slave, you're not expecting to benefit from the flesh. That's the point. With a human being, it doesn't mean you're going to tear the slave. It just means you're not thinking about the value of its flesh. No one's thinking about that. So therefore, if, if, you're, if you're going to be overfeeding you know, with all these luxuries for the slave, you're not giving more value to the guy. The, ma- the master doesn't gain anything. But the animal, that's what it is. It's, it's only to be fattened, fattened up. Lefutma'avida, to be fattened up and eaten. So therefore, the owner is directly benefiting if the animal is over, if the animal is overfed. Now, the big child is just, I mean, the thing about it is that, so therefore, you're allowed to overfeed the slaves. You're not allowed to overfeed the animals. But what about the basic feeding? That should be that that should be usher, no? Because that directly helps the slave. No, in other words, I'm improving your asset. On the other hand, maybe it's more just like I'm paying off someone you would have to pay. It's hard to know how to look at that. So we shown him here to discuss that, whether or not you'd be allowed to give the basic food. But definitely our Gamar was talking about the extra patterning.